This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good morning. My name is Ian Menkini. I am Suffolk University Law School's Director of Electronic Marketing and Enrollment Management. It is my great pleasure today to welcome to the podcast Gretchen Morganson, business reporter for the New York Times and author of a new book entitled Reckless Endangerment, How Outsized Ambition, Greed, and Corruption Led to Economic Armageddon. Ms. Morganson is speaking today as part of an advanced legal studies symposium at Suffolk University Law School. Ms. Morganson, welcome to the podcast. We're very happy to have you here at Suffolk today and to have you speaking. I was wondering if you could introduce the topic that you're going to be addressing at your keynote address today. What I'm going to be talking about is, I think, really what is on a lot of people's minds right now, that, you know, three years after the really upsetting fall of 2008, the events of failures, the crisis, and really four years after the mortgage crisis, that's really started to unfold, we have still not seen a lot of accountability. A lot of the people who were central to the crisis have really not been held responsible for it. There have been very, very few criminal prosecutions. There have been very few civil cases that have been brought. And this is really, I think, starting to feed into a notion or a view that perhaps there are two sets of rules in America, one for the politically powerful and well-connected and or institutionally powerful and those sets of rules for the rest of us. You'll be speaking about that today at Suffolk. Yes, and talking about how this particular crisis is different from the SNL crisis of the late 80s. And in that crisis, 834 executives went to jail. We have seen only one mortgage executive go to jail as of now. So it really is a stark contrast. I'd like to ask you if you could introduce Reckless Endangerment, which is a very interesting read. Would you mind talking about its unique role in the literature on this topic? Well, I and my co-author, Josh Rosner, who is is a really good housing finance analyst at Graham Fisher in New York. We decided that we wanted to write a book that really went back in time to help people understand this bewildering crisis, how it came about, who laid the groundwork. It was not something that happened literally overnight. Something this large and devastating could not happen overnight. So we knew that. We'd been covering this. He on the institutional side for Wall Street and I as a reporter, we'd been covering this for many years and really wanted people to understand what happened so that we would not have to live through such an episode again. So what we did was we went back in time to the early 90s, which was right after the SNL crisis, and started talking about the role that the government-sponsored enterprises, specifically Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, played in sort of getting the ball rolling on this crisis. It is an interesting, I think, topic because a lot of other books have been written about the crisis and its origin but many of them are either just sort of a blow-by-blow of what went on in the heat of the crisis in the fall of 2008, providing little in the way of analysis, or there have been other books that have really been hesitant to place blame on particular individuals. They all sort of seem to think that this was an act of God, when in actuality it was an act of men and women. So we felt it was important to really help people understand sort of who was central to the crisis, who was central to laying the groundwork, and understand all the different parties involved, whether it was Washington, Wall Street, home builders, regulators. It really was a group effort. There's that amazing anecdote that you raise early in the book with Barney Frank, where someone alerts him to the crisis, and he almost 
passes it off, I guess, for the future. Was that a common feeling? That was an interesting moment because it was a point in time when you could begin to start seeing the crisis forming, the storm clouds forming, and he was asked, what will happen when your constituents come to you and say, look, I was trapped in a home that I had a poisonous loan that I could not repay, that the bank made an awful lot of money on, but I'm now in trouble with. What are you going to say to them then? And he said, we'll deal with that if it happens. Shrugging it off. You know, Mr. Frank was, I think, a key player here as a big supporter of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac throughout the 90s and really almost up until the very end when the companies imploded and had to be taken over by the government. So he does play a fairly sizable role, but there are obviously many people in the private sector who played a larger role than he did. And James Johnson? Yes, James Johnson was the head of Fannie Mae from 1991 until 99. He was the man who really changed the company from what had been a sort of a sleepy utility, quasi-government, quasi-private company that was there to provide mortgage financing if say, private lending dried up. It was not supposed to be an aggressive, earnings-driven, profit-driven company. It was supposed to provide mortgage finance for everyday Americans. Well, Jim Johnson saw the writing on the wall in the early 90s after the SNL crisis. He recognized that Congress was going to become a little bit more aggressive to make sure that there would be no losses in Fannie and Freddie's books as there had been on the SNL's books in the 80s. And so he went to work immediately to thwart any attempts to rein in the company, to thwart any attempts to increase the capital that it would have to set aside to shoulder losses in the future. He worked assiduously to maintain his relationships with Congress so that he would always have friends in high places. He turned it into a political machine. And that was the beginning of the growth in the company's balance sheet and the increasing peril to taxpayers. And so do you foresee, moving forward, a way that this can be avoided, a similar crisis can be averted in the future? Well, unfortunately, the legislation that was written and passed last year to try to make sure that this type of an episode would not happen again really did nothing about several of the key aspects or drivers of it, one of which is banks that are too big, too politically powerful and interconnected to be allowed to fail. So Dodd-Frank did nothing about too-big-to-fail institutions. In fact, before the crisis, there were only two too-big-to-fail institutions, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now there are 10 because of all the major banks that everyone understands will be now bailed out if they get into trouble. So in fact, Dodd-Frank has really institutionalized too big to fail. It's institutionalized this idea that the government will be there to backstop institutions if they get into trouble because of recklessness. So that's a big problem going forward. Glass-Steagall, as you know, was a Depression-era law that protected um, American consumers from rapacious bankers for almost 70 years from the 30s until the 90s. It was 32 pages long. Dodd-Frank is thousands of pages long, and it's my prediction that it will not protect us from these kinds of problems for even one decade. Well, Ms. Morgan, thank you so much for your time today. Anytime. Happy to be here. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.